All right, take your Bibles out. Let's turn to the book of James. James chapter number five. And we want to begin, or we want to continue on with the series and with the sermon we began a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Taking a look here at verses 13 down to verse number 18. Now, if you missed uh, verses 13 uh, down to halfway through verse 16, then you have to go back and listen to those because I'm not preaching on those tonight. I've already dealt with those. Uh, But I do want to read, beginning here in verse 13, down to verse 18, uh, just to set the context of what we're going to be dealing with tonight, and we're going to be finishing up this passage here. Uh, So take a look here at verse 13. The Bible says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he hath committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that he may be healed. This is where we're going to pick up uh, the verses we'll be dealing with tonight, beginning here in verse 16, where it says, The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord, and God, we do pray that, Lord, you would just open up our eyes, Lord, just to behold wondrous things out of your word. Uh, Father, I pray you'd help me as I teach and as I preach tonight, Lord, just give me clarity in my thoughts and in my words, Father. God, I pray you'd empower me, Lord, to faithfully preach your word. Father, I pray, God, you would help us as we come before your word to come with hearts that are ready to receive, ready to apply, and, Lord, just ready to grow, uh, Father, in the grace of God. Lord, I do pray for your blessing upon the preaching part of your service, Lord, this service now. I pray, God, uh, that you would be exalted, and I do pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, tonight we want to continue on where we left off last time and uh, pick up where we left off here in this passage Uh, Verses 13 down to verse number 18 is the specific passage we've been dealing with. And we've been reminded uh, through this passage, uh, God has been teaching us the importance of, in whatever circumstance of life we find ourselves in, the proper response is to draw nigh to God. Whether that is when we are afflicted, whether we, again, come before the Lord in prayer, or whether that is when we are abounding and we are merry and things are going well, we draw nigh to God in praise. Or whether that is sick, again, we seek prayer uh, for healing in situations like that as well. What we see here in our text this evening, the importance of having an effectual prayer life. The importance of having an effectual prayer life. If we are going to be all that God wants us to be as individual Christians, as a church body, then we must, I've said it before, we must be people of prayer. You see, prayer is the engine that drives the church forward. We can have lots of activity. Again, we can spin our wheel serving God. Again, we can go through the motions of doing church, but without prayer, again, we will not go forward with the power of God resting upon us. You know, a church can have, again, great organization, and that's important. 
And a church can have a good budget in place, and that's important. And a church can have, again, all these ministries in place, and that's important. And a church can be you know, very, uh, very organized in its evangelistic outreach and getting gospel tracts out and, uh, again, the, the, the word of God out to the lost around us. And that is very important. And a church can have all the right doctrine and all the right practice and all of its ducks in a row and all of its I's dotted and T's crossed. And all those things are good and all those things are proper and all those things are essential. But if we simply, again, go through the motions of those things and we do not undergird everything we do in prayer, we are going to find that we have a that we have a Christianity that lacks the power of God. I don't know about you, but I don't simply want a mechanical religion. Can I don't simply want to go through the motions in my service to the Lord? No, as I serve the Lord, I want the power of God to rest upon me and for, for the power of God to flow through my life and through the ministry of this church. And we, we must be people of prayer. Because it is through prayer, it is through effectual prayer that we tap into the power of God. In my mind this past week, as, as I was preparing for the sermon, uh, again, I'm not, I'm not uh, the best at illustrations in my preaching, but again, I came up with one that I thought was fitting for, again, what I'm saying here. And uh, again, many of you, I'm sure most of you have seen, again, as you drive into Omaha on I-80, you look up, you cross the Missouri River, you look up on the hill, and you have those huge locomotives. Incredible pieces of machinery. I don't know if you've been up there before. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do so, because they're beautiful. They're incredible pieces of machinery. They're, they're massive, but at the same time, they're just sitting there. Uh, you could say they're unproductive. Now, back in the day, they were productive. I mean, you read the history about, you know, I think one is called the Centennial, the other is called the Big Boy Locomotive, again, some of the largest locomotives that have ever existed. And they're massive, they're huge, they're incredible. They have an incredible exterior. And back in the day, again, these, these big locomotives would carry freight out west, Wyoming, Utah, Colorado, places like that, up and down the mountains and the hills out in the west. And they used to be productive, but now they're just sitting there. Now they are stuck. Now that power that once moved them forward is not flowing through them, again, to enable them to carry the freight like they used to. Oh, they're polished and, you know, they look great and they have a beautiful exterior and all these things, but they're stuck in the same spot year after year after year. And in the spiritual realm, if we're not careful, the same can happen to us. You know, we can have the organization and we can have the ministries and we can uh, do all these things like we're supposed to be doing. But again, we can get to a place where we just have the external trappings of Christianity. But again, we're simply going through the motions and our Christianity is an impotent Christianity. It is a powerless Christianity because we refuse to tap into the power of God through effectual prayer. Ian Bounds, the old Methodist preacher of years gone by, said this. He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men whom the Holy Ghost can use, men of prayer, men mighty in prayer. Again, and I agree with the statement there. Again, we need to get back to the old paths. We need to get back to the simple truths of the word of God. Again, as we become people of prayer... We become a people that God can use in a mighty way. 
I think I've told you this before, but Charles Spurgeon, the, uh, the prince of preachers, that old Baptist preacher back in the 1800s, uh, who pastored the, the great Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, when he would have visitors come to his church, he would often bring them down to the basement of the church and, throw, and show them a, a prayer room where there were many people that were gathered on their knees before God, praying to the Lord. And Spurgeon was known for a, a very effective ministry. You know, a, a great writing ministry, and, you know, a, a ministry that reached thousands, you know, if not millions of people. Again, if you, if you look at it from, uh, from our perspective, and over the years, to today, many people reached through that ministry. Yet he would take people to the prayer room, and he would show them, again, all the people that were praying, and he would uh, tell the visitors, this right here is the powerhouse of the church. This is the powerhouse of the church. In essence, what he was saying is this what this is what drives the church forward. This is why, again, our church has the outreach it does. This is why our church has the effectiveness it does. This is why our church again has the ministry it does. It's not because of us, it's because of God, and it's because we have people who take seriously the matter of, of prayer. True effectual prayer brings true power from God upon a people. And upon a church. A praying church is a powerful church. Our strength for service lies in prayer. Effectual, fervent prayer. So let's take a look here in verse 16. The first thing we see here is there is this call to effectual prayer. There is a call to effectual prayer. Verse 16. The Bible says the I'm starting in the middle part of the verse here says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. I just want to break down this verse and look at it from a couple of different angles here, emphasizing different words as we go along. And the Bible teaches us here that we are called to have an effectual prayer life. So you may be asking, what in the world does that mean? All right, that sounds great, but what is effectual prayer? What's that word effectual mean? Well, the word effectual is, is defined as to put forth power, to be operative, or to work. The word effectual comes from the Greek word energeo. It looks like energy, which is where our English word energy comes from. In Galatians 2.8, the same Greek word is translated as mighty. All right, so we find here that this is a call to be mighty in prayer. Now you look at what the world esteems, and it's so different than what God esteems. You know, the world esteems might in the physical realm. You know, those who are physically strong, the world esteems them. The strongman competitions. The world esteems those who win those, those, those competitions and, you know, have that physical strength. The world esteems those who, have, who are mighty in intellect. They put them on pedestals. You know, those who, those who are born with, you know, just the ability to, uh, to think and to you know, process information and to remember things and to, to figure out things and who are just given great intellects. The Bible esteems the, or not the Bible, the Word of God, or uh, the world esteems those who are mighty in position. Those who are mighty in power, leaders and rulers of, uh, of nations. Those who have some high position of leadership within a state or within a nation. But God, on the other hand, 
Again, God doesn't esteem the strength of man. God is not impressed with, with strongman competitions, all right? Again, thankfully, uh, because I would never win one of those, all right? But God is, God is not impressed with the strength of man, all right? God doesn't esteem even those who are, who are mighty in intellect. God doesn't esteem those who are powerful. I know many world leaders think highly of themselves, but God doesn't necessarily think highly of them simply because of their position. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn that lesson. You know, he was proud of himself. You know, he was proud of his accomplishments. He was proud of all the things he had done, and God had to bring him through a season of humiliation to teach him that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't all he thought he was. He wasn't as special as Nebuchadnezzar thought he was. So he humbled him. What I love about this truth here is that it reminds me that I don't have to be all that the world esteems to be a person that is esteemed by God. Again, I don't have to win some strongman competition to be esteemed by God. You know, I don't, I don't have to you know, be some, some brainiac, some intellect, uh, someone who you know, scores a, a – again, I, I didn't even get close. I, I won't even tell you what I scored on my ACT in high school. It's embarrassing. You know, I didn't, I didn't even get close to it. I think a 36 is a perfect score. I didn't even get close to that. You know, again, I, I wasn't given that ability. You know, but again, God, again, I, I'm thankful that, again, to be esteemed by God doesn't require that I have some, uh, some intellect. You know, it, to, to be esteemed by God doesn't require that I have some higher position in this life. You know, I can be an ordinary person. I can be just a, a simple believer who walks by faith who obeys the word of God, and who is mighty in the thing that matters, and that is prayer. God doesn't esteem all those other things. But God, God does highly esteem the man who is mighty in prayer. The one who is mighty in prayer. So what are the ingredients that make up effectual prayer? Again, what is this mighty prayer? What does it mean to be mighty in prayer? What are the ingredients that are going to be seen within a life or within a person, within a prayer life that is truly effectual? A prayer life that works, a prayer life that gets thing, that, that get, uh, things done, a prayer life that changes things to the glory of God. A couple of things. Number one, the first ingredient is fervency. Fervency. Take a look at verse 16. The Bible speaks here of effectual, fervent prayer. That's an important word. The word fervent here, it means earnest prayer. It means heartfelt prayer. It means passionate prayer. It means zealous prayer. That is the kind of prayer that God is looking for. A prayer that issues forth from the heart, and it may not be the most eloquent prayer, but it is a prayer that comes from the heart of a man or a woman, and it comes before God, and there is a sense of fervency within their prayer. The opposite of this would be a, a, an apathetic prayer, you know, a careless prayer, a half-hearted prayer, a cold prayer, a mechanical prayer. The old Puritan preacher Thomas Brooks said this. He says, cold prayers are as arrows without heads, as swords without edges, as birds without wings. They pierce not, they cut not, they fly not up to heaven. Cold prayers always freeze before they reach heaven. Again, we don't want cold prayers. We want our prayers to be effectual, and a part of that is making sure that our prayers are fervent. 
Our prayer shouldn't be cold. Our prayer should be there should be a warmness to our prayer. There should be an intensity to our prayer. There should be a zeal to our prayer. There should be a passion to our prayer. There should be a a heartfelt sincerity as we come before God in prayer. You know, the picture here is is that of a uh, that of a hungry man who is begging for food and who hasn't had food for days. And he is desperately pleading with people to feed him, to give him what he needs, to provide for what he needs. And in a similar way, we are that needy man. We need God. We need his grace and we need his mercy and we need his wisdom. And we come before God with a sense of desperation. God, I cannot live without you. God, I cannot be the man you called me to be without you enabling me to do so. God, I cannot be a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. God, unless you give me the strength and the wisdom and the discernment to do so. And we must come before God with a sense of fervency, with a sense of desperation. I want to share a quote with you uh, by a man by the name of William Law. This was written many years ago, but it says this. It says, it is not the arithmetic of our prayers, how many they are, nor the rhetoric of our prayers, how eloquent they are, nor the geometry of our prayers, how long they be, nor the music of our prayers, how sweet our voice may be, nor the logic of our prayers, how argumentative they may be, nor the method of our prayers, how orderly they may be, which God cares for. Fervency of spirit is that which availeth much. That's important for us. You know, whenever we come before God in prayer, sometimes we think, well, we have to pray, you know, long drawn out prayers for uh, that for it to be true prayers. Actually, a lot of the prayers in the Bible were short prayers. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with long prayers. I mean, there's a place for that too. But again, don't, don't think that there's a certain again, I, there's a certain word count that I have to reach or a certain time limit that I have to reach in order for God to accept my prayers. Again, or I, or I have to use fancy theological terms, and I have to have some sort of eloquence in my speech as I bring forth prayers to God, and that's not what God cares for in prayer. Again, what does God care for in our prayers? God cares for fervency. God wants us to come before him with our hearts laid bare before him. God wants us to come before him with a sense of fervency. You know, and your prayer may not be the most eloquent. You know, and your prayer may not be the longest prayer. Your prayer, again, may not be uh, the most methodical prayer that there is. But that's okay. Is there fervency in your prayer life? Is there a heartfelt sincerity as you come before God? Is there a sense of desperation? Is there a sense of zeal? Is there a sense of passion within your prayers? So we see the first ingredient is that of fervency, but also another ingredient here, and that is integrity. Take a look at verse 16. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a, what's the next two words? A righteous man availeth much. All right, so we find here that praying men and women must be righteous men and women. Now, the meaning of that word righteous could really have a twofold application. And the the first application I'll give you is really foundational for the second. Without the first, there is no second. And the first, uh, the first way we would apply that word righteous is in the sense of a positional righteousness before God, or what we often refer to as imputed righteousness. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is in and of ourselves, again, we are sinners by nature. 
Our hearts are defiled by sin, like we talked about this morning. And because of that, again, I have no true righteousness to offer up to God. I have no true righteousness to to appease God's wrath against sin and to earn my way to heaven. The Bible says that even our righteous works are as filthy rags in the sight of a holy God. That is how holy God is. That even the best we can offer up to him in our own strength and in our own ability is like filthy rags on the side of him. even, Even the best we can do is tainted by sin. Maybe a good deed, but oftentimes maybe there's a sinful motivation behind that deed. And so we find here that even our righteous works, again, are necessarily pleasing to God. Again, we understand tonight that we can never get to heaven based upon our good works. Can I feel bad for the person that thinks that somehow they're going to get to heaven based upon their good works? Again, there could be nothing further from the truth. Again, I have no righteousness of my own to stand in a right relationship with God. I lack that righteousness. I'm a son of Adam. I'm a sinner by nature. Again, I, I have a heart that has been tainted by the same sin that, uh, that, that, that Adam and Eve had. Because of that, I need somebody else's righteousness. Because of that, if I am going to stand in a right position, in a right relationship with God the Father, I need the righteousness of another transferred or credited to my account. And that is, is exactly what the gospel teaches. The Bible says this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For he hath made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's what happens. When a person repents and believes the gospel, there is a transaction that occurs. You have the account of Christ over here, and your sin is placed upon his account as he bore the wrath for your sin. But in exchange for that, he gives you his perfect, flawless righteousness. Not because you deserve it, not because you earned it, not because you're righteous, far from it, but because he's a gracious God. Because he's a merciful God. And so I stand before God justified. I stand before God declared righteous. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. His righteousness has been put, credited to my accounts. And that's amazing. That is an amazing transaction. So we see here that a true prayer life really begins at salvation. You know, again, a a sinner comes before God and maybe they pray a prayer like the publican prayed in the temple. Oh God, or oh Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God delights to answer that prayer. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So there's the prayer of salvation. There is there is a prayer, again, of coming before God and of confessing your sin and of, of placing your faith and trust in Christ for salvation. And this really begins a life of prayer. You are declared righteous. You have a positional righteousness before God. And that's foundational. And upon on top of that, there's another righteousness, and that is practical righteousness, or you could call it imparted righteousness. So God not only justifies the sinner at the moment of salvation, but God also begins this process of sanctification, removing sin out of our life and replacing it with Christ likeness, 
conforming us to the image of God's Son. As we yield to the Spirit of God and as we obey the Word of God, we are changed into the image of Jesus Christ. We become less sinful and we become more holy. And what God is doing is he is working out the righteousness that he has placed within us. And we find here, again, that because we have been made righteous by Christ positionally, now we're to practically live out that righteousness. We're to work it out in our life. We are to apply the word of God to our lives. Again, this in no way has nothing, this has nothing to do with salvation, but with simply, again, out, out of gratitude to God for his gracious and for his graciousness and his mercy within our life. Again, we offer our lives to the Lord. We obey the Lord. And the Bible makes it clear that a Christian who allows unconfessed sin in their life hinders the relationship with God. Not in a not in a saving sense. Again, once you're a child of God. You're, you're part of the family. Again, God doesn't disown his own. God doesn't disown those whom he has purchased and adopted into his own family. But the Bible does make it clear that as a, just as a father and a son, again, could, uh, could, could get into an argument, there could be sin between, again, the father against the son or the son against the father. And that doesn't change their relationship, but it does change their fellowship. So it is between us and God, and we're the offending party every time, not God. Right? And we, when we sin against God, what we're doing is we are closing up the line of communication between us and the Lord. We are hindering our prayer life with the Lord. And that is why it is so important to keep short accounts with God. The moment you sin, deal with it immediately. The moment a sinful thought comes into your mind, deal with it immediately. Deal with sin immediately, deal with sin ruthlessly, deal with sin decisively, deal with sin completely. Keep short accounts with God so you can keep that line of prayer open with the Lord. Let me give you an example of this. This is a a very unique verse as it pertains to this, but this is a good example of the fact that whenever sin enters our life and we don't confess it and repent of it as believers, it does hinder our prayer life. And you may be surprised at this example here. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this. Speaking to husbands, it says, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, speaking of your wife, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life. But notice the last phrase. Very interesting. It says that your prayers be not hindered, that your prayers be not hindered. So what that is saying is as a husband, if I don't dwell with my wife according to knowledge, if I don't treat her the way that the Bible tells me to treat her, again, if I don't give honor unto my wife, if I don't dwell with her according to knowledge or in an intelligent way, again, spending my life knowing her so that I can minister to her, again, recognizing she is the weaker vessel, so treating her in a, in, in a gentle way, Recognizing that we are heirs together of the grace of life, treating her in an honorable way. When I don't do that as a husband, guess what happens? My prayers are hindered. My prayer life is hindered. And there's many other examples that could be given, but that's a very clear example that the Bible gives. The Bible says husbands do this. Why? That your prayers don't be hindered. Because when you don't do this, guess what happens? That line of communication with God Again, is severed. 
Not that it can't be restored once again, but it is severed for that time. As long as there is a lack of obedience in this area. You see, praying and sinning will never go together. Praying and sinning will never go together. Uh, Psalm 66, 18. The psalmist says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What that is speaking of is the fact that if I allow unconfessed sin into my life, the Lord won't hear me. It cuts off the line of communication. God hasn't moved. I'm the one who's moved. And I'm the one that has put a barrier between me and my Heavenly Father. Like I said, again, that is why as believers we need to keep short accounts with God. We need to deal with sin immediately, decisively, and completely. So we see here that the second ingredient for effectual prayer is not only fervency, but it's also integrity. It begins with salvation, positional righteousness, but also with uh, sanctification. You know, practical righteousness. Living a set-apart life. Living a life that is set apart from sin and unto Christ. And as we do that, it opens up our, uh, the line of communication with God. And it strengthens our prayer life with the Lord. So spiritual integrity is essential to have an effectual prayer life. Consider also uh, the power of effectual prayer. The power of effectual prayer. Take a look at verse 16 again. The Bible says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. The word availeth means to be strong. Right, so this tells me that effectual prayer of a righteous man, effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man, is prayer that is strong prayer. It is prayer that affects results. It is prayer that truly changes things. It is prayer that God delights to answer. The old hymn writer said this. He, he said, William Cowper said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. Why is that? Because Satan knows that he is defenseless against a praying church, a praying family, and a praying believer in Jesus Christ. Again, his attacks against you are limited if you are a person of prayer. Why? Because you are constantly resisting the devil. And the Bible says as you do that, he will flee from you. Again, you are putting a spiritual protection about your life from the attacks of the enemy. And I think if we truly got a grasp on the power of prayer... And the reality of what is being said here, then we would see prayer not as something we simply do when it's convenient or not as something to, uh, we, we do whenever we're in a bind and we, we, we shoot up an arrow prayer like Nehemiah did in the moment when we are in need of help. Again, that's good. We, we should do things like that. But prayer becomes something where it's, we recognize, again, I need prayer because I need God all the time. I can't just have God on Sundays. No, I need God on Monday. I need God in the workplace. I need God in my home. You know, I need God, you know, as in, in my interpersonal relationships. I need God at all times. We need, to des- we need to see how desperately we are in need of the Lord. The old Scottish preacher Robert Murray McShane said this. He said, Oh, believing brethren, what an instrument is this which God hath put into your hands. Prayer moves him that moves the universe. Prayer moves him that moves the universe. Do we believe that? Do we live like we believe that? Do we, do we pray like we believe that? 
You know, sometimes, and I'm, I'm guilty of this, sometimes, you know, we, we pray a certain prayer, and then we're actually surprised when God answers it. You know, we're, again, I know there's been many times, again, where I prayed a prayer, and it's been a big prayer, and God has answered that prayer, and I'm just, I'm just blown away. I'm just amazed. And again, there, there's, there's a sense in which I think that's natural, just to be amazed at you know, the, the graciousness of the Lord and how he, how he orchestrates things and works things out and provides for, for needs that you have. But at the same time, you know, sometimes you're surprised. Wow, God really answered that prayer. There's a story I came across, and I want to share it with you. I think that drives this point home. The story is told of a missionary who received a letter from a young girl whose Sunday school class was writing letters to missionaries. And it was obvious that the teacher, before they sent the letters, had told the students that the missionaries were busy and it was unlikely that they would be able to respond to their letters. And this was seen in the letter of one little girl, and here's what she wrote. She said, Dear Mr. Smith, we are, not, or we are praying for you. We are not expecting an answer. And without realizing it, this little girl summed up the way many people pray, many Christians pray. Lord, we pray for so-and-so, or we pray for this, or we pray for that, but we're not really expecting an answer from you, O oh Lord. And is that how we pray? I think many times that is how we pray. Let's continue on, though. Another point I want us to consider is an example of effectual prayer. Now, take a look at verse 17 through 18. The Bible says this. The Bible says, Elias, that's the prophet Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So the Bible here uses the example of Elias, which is the prophet Elijah, to show us, again, what effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man that availeth much looks like. You want to see what this looks like? Look at the life of Elijah. Now, before you say, again, there, there's no way. There's no way I could ever even come close to praying like Elijah. I mean, Elijah, isn't he like, you know, I, I'm in this category down here, you know, ordinary Christian, and, and he's way up there in the, in the super saint category, which, by the way, doesn't exist. All right, but he's way up there. I mean, there's no way that, that, that me, of all people, I'm just an ordinary person, that I could pray like Elijah, that I could be like Elijah, that I could have the kind of faith and the kind of prayer life that Elijah had. I think that's why the Bible reminds us at the outset that Elijah was an ordinary person. Right? Elijah was not some superhuman. He was not some super saint. He was not in some super saint category because that category doesn't exist. But verse 17 says this, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. So James reminds us that, yes, God, although God used Elijah in a mighty way, I love reading about the life of Elijah. God used Elijah in a mighty way. The Bible reminds us that Elijah was, was an ordinary guy. I mean, Elijah was a man subject to like passions, that is, similar passions as we are. He had the same nature as you and I. He had, he had the same disappointments and the same trials and the same, and the same weaknesses that, that you and I have. You see, Elijah was just like any believer. He was an ordinary man who served an extraordinary God. He was an ordinary man who learned how to pray. 
served a great and mighty God. But isn't that a description of every single believer? We're just ordinary people. There's nothing special about us. The special one is God. The special one is the one we serve. He's the great one. He's the one to be honored. He's the one who deserves preeminence. And we're just ordinary men and women. And we're just ordinary, you know, again, we're, we're just ordinary people. Simple people, you know, who, who have the same passions as, as the man Elijah. Somebody once said we're nobodies who survey somebody and we want to tell everybody. I, you look at the life of Elijah and God used him in a mighty way. God used him in an incredible way. Again, remember Elijah up on the uh, upon upon Mount Carmel, and you know he he defeated and he withstood the uh, all the false prophets of the false god Baal that was being worshipped in his day and age, and uh, he called down fire from heaven and God consumed the sacrifice and all the water around the sacrifice, proving to the people that there's one true God and that is Jehovah God. Again, all the false gods are impotent, they're powerless, they're nothing. Right? They they couldn't do anything. And God used Elijah to teach the people a lesson that day. And we find Elijah in that account in 1 Kings. We find Elijah on the mountaintop of victory. But guess where we find Elijah in the next chapter of 1 Kings? We find him going from that mountaintop of victory, defeating the, the again all the false prophets of Baal. Again, God doing a great miracle through him. God proving that he alone is the true God, the true and living God, Jehovah God, and, and there is no other God. And then in the next chapter, you find the same person. This isn't somebody else, but the same exact person. And now he is in the valley of despair. He is literally running for his life from a bloodthirsty woman by the name of Jezebel. Jezebel, the prophet killer. And Jezebel is is seeking after him. Jezebel wants him dead. He is running for his life. He's depressed. He doesn't want to live any longer. And he thinks that he is alone. And just in just one chapter, we see a great change in Elijah's life. Now, if all we had was uh, the chapter where it talks about Elijah's experience on Mount Carmel, we might think that Elijah was some sort of super saint. All right? But then the next chapter reminds us, no, Elijah was just an ordinary guy who God chose to use, who trusted in God, who got a hold of God through prayer. He was just an ordinary guy who served an extraordinary God, just like any one of us. And God used him in a mighty way to do great things. But he also, got dis- he also got discouraged. He got depressed. You know, he got lonely. You know, he, he became fearful at times. He even got to points in his life where he didn't want to live. And we see here that Elijah, though used greatly by God, was fully human. He had seasons of weakness. He had seasons of disappointment. He had seasons of frailty, yet in spite of his weakness, he was connected to the living God through the power of prayer. So we see here he's an ordinary guy. We also see he prayed an extraordinary prayer. Uh, Take a look at verse uh, uh, 17 and 18. The Bible says Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth her fruit. So through Elijah's prayers, God sent a drought against the northern kingdom of Israel as a judgment against wicked king Ahab and the idolatry of the people. And this drought lasted 
for three years and six months. After that period of time, Elijah prayed again, and the drought was ended, and God sent rain once again. Now, again, this doesn't mean, again, don't be confused by this. This doesn't mean that you can now go out and just pray, and, you know, God will rain and expect God to send rain. All right? Again, Elijah prayed in accordance with the will of God. It was according to the will of God that God was sending judgment upon Ahab and the people of Israel. That's a foundational principle of prayer. It's praying in accordance with the will of God. That doesn't mean you can just pray whatever you want to and expect God to answer it. But you come before God, you pray in accordance with the will of God, you pray for God's will to be done, and you pray in a mighty way. You pray with a sense of fervency, and you let you back up your life with a life of integrity. Again, we're reminded here in this passage that God calls his people to be people of prayer. God calls his people to pray effectually. And the way we do that is by praying fervently. And the way we do that is by praying from a life of integrity. And I'm encouraged by the word of God this, this evening because this reminds me that I don't have to be a super saint uh, to be a man of prayer. To be a person who truly prays in an effectual way. And I don't have to be in some super saint category. Again, like I said, that category doesn't exist. Can all we have to be are ordinary Christians who recognize that we serve an extraordinary God, an all-powerful God, who live a life of integrity, and who come before God with a sense of fervency, praying in the will of God, but also praying big prayers, praying great prayers. You know, praying for that lost loved one that you think is too far too gone. And recognizing that it's God's will. I mean, God desires that all men come to repentance. You're praying in the will of God. And praying fervently for the salvation of that person. You know, praying for God to help you overcome some sin within your life. You know, you're praying according to the will of God. And praying for God to give you the strength and praying with the sense of desperation. God, I need your help to have victory in this area of my life. And you're praying in the will of God. And you come before God with a sense of fervency, and you come before God with a life of integrity, and you make this, again, you become a, a man or woman who prays in an effectual way. Prayer changes things, not because of us, but because of the one we pray to, because God delights in answering our prayers. And are you a person of prayer? Again, is prayer something that you, you recognize just how important and how vital it is. I mean, we've spent three weeks talking about prayer. And we even touched on it on Sunday morning a couple weeks ago. And then we've touched on we've been looking at it on Wednesday nights too. You think God is trying to get a point across? We must be people of prayer. Can a prayerful people or a powerful people? Like the, like the hymn writer said, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. And whatever, whatever we do, and let's make sure that first and foremost, we are people of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, we do thank you, Lord, just for this opportunity you've given us just to gather again this evening, Lord, and just look at this very important passage, God. God, I pray you take the truth that has been said tonight, and I pray, God, that you drive it home. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just, uh, Lord, just use it just to penetrate hearts and, and lives. Father, I pray, God, you would just give us... Lord, hearts that are receptive and, Lord, are ready to receive and ready to apply. 
Lord, I pray, God, that tonight we recognize, Lord, that if we are going to have the power of God upon us within our lives, within our homes, within our church, God, that we must be people of prayer. Lord, we don't want to simply go through the motions. Lord, that's so easy to do, Father. God, if, if we're going to serve you, God, we want to be people who, Lord, are filled with your power and, Lord, through whom your power flows. God, our church, our families, Lord, our individual lives. God, I pray we take this seriously, God, and I pray that we'd come before you, Lord, not in a half-hearted way, Lord, but in a, Lord, just with, with a sincere heart, Lord. God, in a, with a sense of fervency. And God, I pray, Lord, that we'd come before you with a life of integrity, Father. Lord, that we'd make sure that, Lord, we are truly keeping short accounts with you. And Lord, we're not allowing any sin to hinder, Lord, our prayer life. God, I pray you take the truth that has been said tonight. God, I pray you'd apply it to hearts. And God, I pray you'd have your will and way, God, in our response to this service. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.